I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is the weekly briefing for the week ending September 24th. Artificial intelligence is already widespread. Your smartphone uses it to help recognize your face so that only you can unlock it. Cars use it to help drivers avoid collisions. It's used by data communications network operators to detect malicious hacking attempts. AI seems to have limitless potential, but too many people tend to gloss over its shortcomings. EE Times and our sister magazines recently published a set of stories on the engineering challenges of artificial intelligence. There are systems that we all rely on that provide critical services. Systems that deliver electricity and manage rush hour traffic and keep hospitals running smoothly. Should we hand over control of these systems to AIs that we cannot be sure are reliable? The growing conclusion is that we remain a long way from using AI in mission-critical systems, especially those that should have five nines reliability, systems that must work 99.999% of the time. Our guest this week is Helen Toner, Director of Strategy at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology. We talked to Toner about what safe, reliable AI should look like when you take into account engineering and societal expectations and legal and regulatory frameworks. We'll get to our discussion about how far we can trust AI in a moment. But first, here are some of the stories you can find in EE Times this week. The software industry has thrived with containers. These are basically standalone chunks of code that execute functions and take care of their dependencies. One of the big benefits is that they can be adopted as needed and, when done properly, can be used in different computing environments. ARM is proposing the containerization of automotive software based on its recently announced scalable open architecture for Embedded Edge framework project. The acronym is SOFI. ARM defines SOFI as an open software architecture and reference software implementation that operates in real time and is safety aware. Read our story for a detailed explanation. EE Times was ahead of the curve on autonomous vehicles. Years ago, we were among the first to warn that, from an engineering standpoint, it was baloney that self-driving cars would be safe anytime soon. European regulators figured that out pretty quickly, too. Now, U.S. regulators have gotten wise, too. Read our story about the dynamic new chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, Jennifer Hamendi. Silicon Labs recently made three big interrelated announcements. First, the company announced its first sub-gigahertz system on a chip. The company is also introducing a unified software development kit that should make it far easier than ever before for developers to incorporate multiple wireless technologies in their products. That way, all the things in the Internet of Things can actually communicate with each other. The third thing is that Silicon Labs has created a tool that lets its customers make changes to their products in the factory. We recently talked to Silicon Labs' new CEO, Matt Johnson. Here's what Johnson had to say about that. This one's really unique. This is giving our customers 
access to program devices in our manufacturing line at a late stage to implement different features and capabilities. So as an example, a customer could change the make custom part numbers or unique top marks. They could uh, add security keys, uh, private or public. They could inject certificates in support of multiple uh, cloud interfaces or wireless protocols. They can enable, disable different features such as uh, secure boot, um, secure debug, tamper protection. All these things can be enabled by our customers themselves. So, you know, if you want to make it real, if you step back and you say, okay, look at the supply environment right now. It's, it's just, it's a, the thing we've never experienced, but there's a lot of gray market stuff going on. There's a lot of counterfeiting. This is a, an awesome way to address that. Or in the security domain, imagine for our customers to be able to know exactly, you know, to manage the uh, authentication and identity of devices from the moment they leave the manufacturing environment versus having to do that at a contract manufacturer or you know, having to distribute your holdings inventory, then it's made secure. All these things are no longer gonna be allowed in our industry where the expectation of bar is gonna be extremely high in a zero trust environment to say, I can trust that IoT device you're going to need this type of capability. So this is something that didn't exist in the industry, or at least in the IoT wireless space. We know that for sure. And this is going to allow our customers to go in and program devices in the line and then ship them wherever they want with high confidence that they can't be tampered with, won't be tampered with, and are authentic and secure. That was Silicon Labs CEO, Matt Johnson. If you are already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left and you'll see the links to all the stories I just mentioned. You can also go straight to eetimes.com where you can get the details on all of these stories we mentioned along with plenty of others. That includes industry news from our sister publications. Scroll down to the bottoms of the EE Times homepage to find articles from EDN, Power Electronic News, Electronic Products, EPS News, EE Times Europe, Embedded.com, EE Web, and Analog Planet. EE Times and our sister publications recently took a hard look at the state of artificial intelligence. One conclusion is that the developing field lacks what some call engineering discipline. There are good reasons not to blindly trust AI systems. In some important applications, AI can be fooled, sometimes easily. That weakness has limited real-world deployments of AI algorithms to relatively low-risk applications. We are a long way from deploying artificial intelligence in a mission-critical system, says Helen Toner of Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Toner has a rare combination of expertise in both AI technology and technology policy. She previously worked as a senior research analyst at Open Philanthropy, where she advised policymakers and grantmakers on AI policy and strategy. After that, she moved to Beijing, where she studied the Chinese AI ecosystem as a research affiliate of Oxford University's Center for the Governance of AI. 
She's written for Foreign Affairs magazine and other outlets on national security implications of AI and machine learning for China and the United States. Toner was interviewed by my EE Times colleague, George Leopold. George managed our recent special project on artificial intelligence. Here's George with Helen Toner. Helen, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd start by just getting some definitions. Uh, it seems to us that artificial intelligence may, in fact, be a bit of a misnomer, that one could question whether it is either artificial or intelligent. You know, it requires extensive human training, and and the logic is completely different from humans. And as I think you pointed out, it can be easily fooled. How would you define what AI is at this point in the state of the technology? I mean... You're absolutely pointing out a, a really important point, which is at this point, the, the phrase artificial intelligence has become so nebulous as to be almost meaningless. Uh, I often use, you know, when people ask for a definition, I, I go with something like, you know, computers doing smart stuff, um, because I think that gets, a, you know, appropriately uh, informal sense of, of what we're talking about here. This is not a single clear discipline. This is not a, a single clear methodological approach. Another phrase that I really like comes from the AI researcher Francois Cholet, and he says that he agrees that artificial intelligence is, is a bit of a misnomer, especially if you, you know, take those words um, artificial and intelligent and try to figure out what that would mean. And he prefers the phrase cognitive automation, which I also really like. Um, I think because Firstly, it takes some of the, the mystery and the glamour out of you know, a phrase like artificial intelligence, which can sound like you're doing something very uh, magical or, or special. Yeah, the marketing hype, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also really like cognitive automation because it puts you know, AI or whatever we're calling it into context with, with pre previous you know, types of things that we've automated. So obviously throughout the Industrial Revolution, we automated a lot of non-cognitive labor, a lot of physical labor. Mm -hmm. And what I see as what's happening now is that we're just developing an increasing number of ways to, to automate labor that happens inside our heads instead of using our, our physical bodies. Yeah. Um, and of course, that doesn't always look like exactly replacing what the human does, just like, you know, automation in, in agriculture has not looked like building robots that go out and work the fields. It's looked like, or, you know, humanoid robots that go out and work the fields the way a human would. It's looked like building entirely new pieces of equipment that do things at a scale and a, you know, a speed and an efficiency that, that humans never could. And I think we're seeing similar things when it comes to, you know, quote unquote, artificial intelligence. Yeah. And, and that definition um, sort of is an extension of the old expert systems from two or three decades ago, right? Right. Yeah. And I think it can even include, you know, if we're talking cognitive automation, you can even, I, I think uh, it's often useful to think of AI as just sort of a la the latest wave in, in software and computing and what we can do in general. So, you know, a spreadsheet could be thought of as cognitive automation as well. Obviously, that took a lot of work that used to be very painstaking, um, you know, human labor, and 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 made it much faster. So yeah, I think I think that phrase also helps, as you say, put the current wave of AI, which is maybe based especially around machine learning, deep learning, and, and put it into the historical context of these many different things we've been doing with computers. Yeah, right. Okay, so it should be noted you are an engineer by training, right? Well, halfway. I, I have an undergraduate degree in, in chemical engineering, which uh, so I'm I'm usually in in you know foreign policy circles, that makes me very technical by those standards. But I think among yeah. among real engineers, it doesn't really count. 
Yeah, but your point in the research that the center's been doing on, on sort of the arc of AI technologies is that the, the one thing that's that's lacking here is that engineering discipline. Talk a little bit about that, what's needed. Yeah, I mean, I would say I think there, there are multiple things that are lacking. So I think many of the, you know, ethical and, and social, you know, desiderata that we would want to have in place are also lacking. But but as well, a thing that's very much lacking is this, this engineering discipline. I should give credit where it's due. I really got this point from Michael I. Jordan, who is a, an AI researcher himself, who has a really nice, um, really nice article on this. But yeah, essentially the idea is that what we have in the systems that we're building is still a little bit, I mean, machine learning researchers themselves have referred to it a little bit as, as like alchemy. So, you know, in the, se- you know, in the sense that uh, people are kind of pouring things into test tubes and seeing what comes out, and sometimes what comes out seems kind of neat, but we mm-hmm. don't really have a great in-principle understanding of, of what is going on and when things are likely to work well and, and when they're, they're likely to work poorly. And of course, you know, we can build things without having an engineering discipline for them, right? We built houses and bridges and all kinds of things long before we had, you know, even Newton's laws of physics, um, let alone, you know, modern civil engineering codes. Uh, But the more, um, you know, the the more we want to use these systems in ways that we need them to work well, um, and in contexts where where failures are really costly, the the more it's a, a risky decision to deploy these kind of uh, you know, cobbled together uh, systems that that seem to work and that seem kind of cool, but where we don't really have any any principled way of of building them so that we know exactly what they're going to behave. We don't really have principled way of training people to build them right. so that, that we know how they're going to behave. Um, not nearly the same way that we do in in other you know more established engineering disciplines. Yeah. So what we need really here is an ecosystem of of you know boring things like technical standards, which are essential. Yeah. And 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 probably uh, a more open approach with with more uh, collaboration and certainly less duplication. Yeah, I think I think definitely in my mind uh, the the collaboration between the technical folks at every level of the stack and also non technical folks who are using these systems and putting them into practice is absolutely mm-hmm. critical because some of these problems are technical problems. Um, and some of these problems are social problems, and, and many of these problems are socio-technical problems, where you need to both figure out, you know, what are we aiming for, what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, and also figure out, you know, what is achievable and how do we how do we build that, um, mm-hmm. and you know, where the things that we need are not achievable, how can we um, push forward the the basic science of uh, AI reliability, AI safety. Um, specification. How do we how do we make those underlying advances that then enable us to to build things to the desiderata that we need? But that sort of requires this back and forth conversation between yeah mm-hmm. people at, at each layer. Mm-hmm. And so the upshot right now through this gap is we're we're using this technology in fairly low risk applications. But you would argue, I think, that we're a long way from using this technology for any mission critical applications. I think that's right. And I think it's also been interesting to see what kinds of applications turn out to be higher stakes than we maybe would have expected them to be. So one example of that would be, it's, it's very hard to pin down the effects of the social media algorithms because they're so diffuse and it's, it's hard to, to know exactly you know, which algorithmic uh, output led to which you know, social outcome. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's good reason to be suspicious that um, 
the kinds of, you know, you would think of, yeah, you would think of how your, your Facebook feed is ranked um, or which videos YouTube recommends to you. You would think of that as a low stakes application. Right. But I think there is now good reason to think that, um, you know, some of the, the algorithms and, and models that were deployed there um, to aim for something as innocuous seeming as increasing engagement, you know, keeping you, the user on the site, maximizing the, the probability that you click a link. It seems like some of those those systems have have led to, you know, in the case of YouTube, perhaps more radicalizing content being promoted because it's more likely to keep people engaged, keep them mm -hmm. clicking down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. In the case of Facebook, there's been, you know, some work looking at the role of the, you know, the, the newsfeed sorting and the recommending recommending in in, you know, things as serious as um, genocide in Myanmar, I believe. Yeah. And so I, I think there's both. I think it is both true that we are a long way from seeing these systems used in applications that are widely recognized as being high stakes, and also that, that some of these lower stakes um, applications turn out to have, um, I guess we could say, you know, have a fat tail in the sense of the, the low probability um, events that can still be mm -hmm. uh, serious enough to, to be really concerning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're uh, still a, a long way from, from uh, like uh, autonomous applications, which I, seems to be uh, one of the holy grails, certainly for things like automotive and uh, maybe even up to and including military applications. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, self-driving cars um, are an interesting case because obviously with all of these applications, we want to be comparing, you know, what's the automated um, or autonomous uh, performance compared to the baseline. Mm -hmm. And and driving is, is such an unusual example because the baseline is so bad, right? We have tens of thousands of deaths due to automotive automobiles right. each year. And so that is a case where uh, it does still seem like we're we're a far way off you know, a decent way off from having really widespread autonomous vehicles. But that is one where I could imagine uh, you know more imperfect performance being acceptable because the current human baseline mm -hmm. um, is so poor um, and, yeah. and, 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 is, and is relatively clear as well. It's relatively easy to, to sort of get an aggregate sense of, um, of what the human performance is. But in many other domains, either the, the bar is much higher um, or it's much harder to, to understand kind of what does the human baseline look like. Right. Well, and we note uh, from, from a regulatory standpoint, the NTSB did something significant this summer in terms of collecting crash data, not not accident. They said crash data because you know the the accident is a fraught word. Crash, uh, by definition, means somebody's at fault here, whether yes. it's whether it's the car the, the 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 car maker or the driver. So uh, that that represents a, a small step forward, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah, and and certainly again with the the sort of. Uh, collaboration across the stack, all the way from you know basic science up through engineering to the the users and the the regulators and, and administrators, uh, uh, all of these systems and all of these risks have to be integrated into the existing you know legal frameworks that we have. So to the extent that existing you know liability frameworks work well here, great. That's a you know that's a well established way of dealing with problems, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't always. Uh, isn't always clear how those frameworks frameworks apply, and so when, to the extent that it's not not clear, we need to come up with ways of um, thinking through how to how to adjust them or how to come up with um, with new legal frameworks that that do help 
um, you know, create the right incentives to prevent these accidents to respond to or, or crashes or incidents um, to respond to them where needed. Um, yeah. Because the you know the role of, of computers in the decision making sort of does change the way that some of these existing frameworks mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, Helen, what's the goal here is to to build reliable, trusted AI systems that that we know will will work when they have to work. I mean, I don't think we're going to get to five nines reliability anytime soon. But but what do we need to do to, to at least approach that? I think there are at least three pieces. The first piece is the basic science piece. So this is what, how good can these systems get? What tools do we have available? What do we know about when they perform well and when they perform badly? And this has been a huge area of growth within you know, the AI and machine learning research community over the past five years or so. There's been... Um, you know, the, the current current boom in, in deep learning research started around, you know, 2011, 2012, and there was a lot of work on um, figuring out what these systems could do, you know, which problems can you apply them to, um, where they get good results. And, and more recently, and, and sort of more the last five years or so rather than the last 10, there's also been a lot more attention in the, in the basic research side to, um, to safety and reliability and to, to understanding um, performance. Um, and I, I think also, you know, the interpretability of these systems is, is another really useful input here that, that lets you understand, um, depending on the application and depending on what kinds of assurances you need, having better ways to, to understand conceptually what's going on inside these systems is, is also extremely valuable. So that, that's the kind of the basic science piece, mm -hmm. at sort of the, the, the bottom of the stack in, in my mind. It, maybe the, the top of the stack is, is the um, social or political or legal piece of what are we looking for here? Um, so I think I've mentioned desiderata a couple times, you know, what is acceptable in these systems? If we're talking automobiles, are we looking at, you know, traffic fatalities or are we looking at other things? Like, uh, you know, you could imagine being interested in the risks to people outside the vehicle versus people inside the vehicle. Maybe that would be different with autonomous vehicles than it is with human drivers or something like, you know, I'm not a, not a um, autonomous vehicle expert by any means, but... Um, mm -hmm. That's a relatively simple example, perhaps, if we're talking something like, uh, you know, using machine learning in, in hiring, I think is a, you know, a really fraught case, for instance, where we are starting to see these, these um, ML-based, uh, machine learning-based pre-screening systems that are being advertised with all kinds of hype of artificial intelligence, and they're, you know, going to revolutionize your hiring process and save you so much time. Right. And there's really... I, I'm not aware of much good evidence that they work well at all, but there's also not much, um, we don't have kind of an established social understanding or legal understanding of what is acceptable performance or what is, you know, what is acceptable behavior for a system performing a function like that. Yeah, yeah, that that would be an, an application that would be rife with bias, wouldn't it? In terms of absolutely one, I think one way they use these systems is to gauge, you know, who is most likely to succeed, uh, who would be committed, uh, who would get through a, a graduate program, that type of thing. Well, there there are a lot of opportunities for bias in a in a absolutely like that. Yeah, very much so, and especially you know the often the the, the most obvious you know, data to, to train on for a system like that is, is historical data of who have you accepted in the past, who have you hired mm -hmm. in the past. You know, Amazon has its famous example of, of trying to train a, um, a resume screener that, that was based on, on past hiring data and was found that once they, once they trained it, um, 
that in part it was looking for, you know, markers of maleness um, and discounting markers of femaleness um, because that mm-hmm. was something, it, you know, turned out in the past Amazon had hired more men. And so this, the system was learning to, to recognize that feature. But there's also, I mean, there's also just like really bad performance. I remember reading one evaluation of a, um, of a, a hiring system or a pre-screening system where the interview, I, I think they were deliberately testing it to, to show it, how poorly it performed. And the interviewee spoke entirely in German and was given very good, a very good rating for her English skills. Um, you know, so there's also just, there's also just this nonsense of, of a total lack of um, evidence around these systems working well at all, um, let alone working in an unbiased way. Right. So, so that, that's the kind of thing where I think we, um, in this sort of social legal piece, we, we need time and discussion and debate um, at, a, at a very broad level, um, you know, with engagement of many, many stakeholders around if we are going to automate, you know, some task, and there's, you know, many, many tasks we could consider automating. If we are going to automate that, what does acceptable performance look like? What are the, the relevant characteristics or the relevant, um, uh, yeah, outcomes here? And how do, we, how do we decide whether a given system is performing acceptably? So there's the, the foundational science piece, there's the sort of socio-legal piece, and then in between, I think, is this engineering piece of once you have those other two pieces, it, I think it should be more possible to, to develop that engineering discipline. Um, you know, I, I think of, if, you, if we make an analogy to, to other engineering disciplines, what you usually have um, in structural engineering, for example, is you both have this underlying physics of, you know, statics and kinetics and how things work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the, the sort of um, the, the socio-legal piece of, you know, well, what is the reasonable expectation for, for a building? Um, you know, if, if you have, uh, for instance, uh, out of the blue, you know, an enormous earthquake in a region that isn't known for earthquakes and where there's no, you know, the, the, the building code doesn't, um, doesn't say that you have to be earthquake safe, then, then you know, presumably the... Um, no one was expecting that building to, to hold up to earthquakes. Whereas if you're obviously in, a, in an earthquake zone, then the building code includes earthquake um, proofness. Um, and so that, that's sort of required. And so um, in most engineering disciplines, you have this kind of underlying science and you have this um, you know, over-the-top expectation setting. And then it's the engineer's job to figure out how to meet, um, meet the desirable criteria using the underlying science. So... Um, yeah, in, in my mind, those, those sort of three major components are are really all missing for AI right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that was uh, that was our intent was sort of okay. Let's take a hard look at this. Uh, we're sort of at the end of this AI hype phase. Uh, how do we how do we get from this being maybe a tool to you know what our industry likes to call a solution? And it, it sounds like uh, we're we're far from that at this point, and we got a lot of work to do. But it's at least now we're thinking about uh, you know how do we build a foundation here for a building that'll stand up and it it won't uh, won't collapse on a on a beach in Miami, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited as well about initiatives like uh, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is is putting together an AI risk framework, risk management framework, um, and you know we're we're just we're not at the point where they can start writing down standards and saying here is you know, how you have to build your AI system. We just, you know, as, I, as I've been saying, we, we don't have kind of the underlying concepts or the underlying um, mm-hmm. science to do that. But I think we are at the point where NIST coming in and talking about 
what are some of the key concepts involved here? How do we define those concepts? Mm-hmm. In what ways are those concepts relevant in different kind of application areas or for different types of AI systems? Yeah. I'm excited to see some of that work getting started. And of course, you know, NIST is a great group to be to be bringing together, you know, doing this this collaboration across yeah. um, across different types of stakeholders. So I, I'm yeah. hoping that that those kinds of initiatives can can start to to move us a little bit in the right direction. Yeah, and and, and that that illustrates the the point that not, you know not only semiconductors, which we focus on, but but the the AI technology that comes out of this is going to be strategic over the next decade. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it does depend on what happens with this with this technology. So it, it's possible in my mind that we're going to continue to struggle enough with the the basic science of of making these systems safe and reliable that it, it may turn out that it's just not tractable to to use them in in particularly strategic domains. That's not my you know I don't think that's the most likely outcome, but it, it does seem possible. But but certainly if we do see progress on um, on building these machine learning systems in a way that we feel good about incorporating into an increasing range of types of applications, then I think plenty of those applications are going to be ones with strategic implications. Um, and so that will only, I guess, up the up the stakes here and up the ante. Yeah, yeah. Helen Toner, Director of Strategy at Georgetown University Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Thank you for your time, Helen. Thank you so much. This was fun. That was EE Times editor George Leopold with our guest, Helen Toner, currently with Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. The lead article in our special project on AI is called AI 2.0, Engineering Trust. The special project includes a number of articles that examine how AI works and how it's being applied on the roads, on battlefields, and elsewhere. That wraps up this episode of the Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.